Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 21 through 36, but I, I want to begin with a question. Have you ever heard of a guy named Dave Waddle? Is that not like the best last name ever? Dave Waddle. Uh, Dave Waddle was, oh, I don't know, 146 pounds. He's about six feet tall. He was from the metropolis of Canton, Ohio. I don't know if we have any Ohio people in here. Uh, he ran in the Olympics. Now, this was some years ago. He's really remembered for two things. Uh, he wore a golf hat while running in the Olympics. I've got to say, I've never seen that before, and I don't think that I've ever seen that since. But this goes back to 1972 when the Olympics were held in Munich, Germany. And I want to show you the race. Take a look. First 100 meters, and then they'll break. Boyd is looking strong again at the moment already. On the inside, we have Arjanov. Arjanov in the lead as they break, but Boyd on the outside is going for the lead right now. Uko, the other Kenyan, on the inside, and Waddle is way back exactly where he was in the semifinals. We don't know right now whether he's just trying to stay out of trouble. It'll be a few more hundred yards before we know if Dave is seriously injured or really just logging back to stay out of trouble. He's not too bad because it was quite a fast pace through that first 200 meters. And as we said, here go the Kenyans charging for the lead, coming up to the bell lap, Boyd and Uku. Okay, and right with him is Andy Carter of Great Britain, Dieter Fromm of East Germany. Those are the four right now. They're on the bell lap. The split is 52.3. If Dave could just pull up here and get on the outside of Orzano, he would have him boxed in perfectly. Let's hope Dave makes a move down this back stretch. The Kenyans running like a mirror reflection of each other. In first and second, Fromm there is right goes. there with him. There's Arzana from the Soviet Union going up to the lead now. There goes Arzana, the favorite, taking the lead. Dave Waddle is making his bid. He's not in too bad position right now. I think Dave's in great position on this. At this point, he's in perfect position on the outside. Good striking distance to this last 100, 200 meters. Stand by for the kick of Dave Waddle. If he's got it, he could make it. But he's got to catch Arzana and the Kenyans. And here he comes. This is the bid for a gold medal of Dave Waddle. USA. <laughs> All right, now why am I showing you that clip? Uh, now one, if you're running in the Olympics, uh, you're going to be one of the very best at what you do, right? The reason that this story is so fetching to me uh, is because of the golf cap. I'm kidding. That's not really it. But is that not the weirdest thing you've ever seen for a runner? First, let me get my cap on. That didn't make him more aerodynamic for sure. But even though he is running in the Olympics, and you go, man, that's gotta be one of the best in the world. They don't just let people walk off the street and run in the Olympics. This guy had, had knee issues that had kept him from training for weeks. And here he was running against the very best in the world, going, God, he was describing it. He was so far behind, and you even saw this in the clip. He was so far behind the other runners. He was like, you know, I don't know, by the end of the race, I was just hoping to be nearer to the pack much less to win. Given all of the circumstances around him, the most important thing for a runner is the legs, and the very thing that he didn't have was his legs, and he goes on to win the gold. I just wanted to show you that, to pump you up today, and so that I can make a point. We're gonna be looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, about the people that God uses for his work in the kingdom. See, last week, 
last week, Paul was saying that there are a number of things that the people that are outside of the church look at and they just go, this is absolutely foolish. It's absolutely, it doesn't make any sense. One of the things that doesn't make sense to the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was saying. It, the, the idea that a man would die on the cross and somehow his suffering and death would be a victory, that just looks foolish to the world. But as Paul said, it, but it's the wisdom of God and it's the power to save you. One of the other things that's pointed out that seems like absolute foolish to the world is us. And some of that is our own fault. But as Paul looks at, and if you look at verse uh, 26 to 31, here's what he says. He says, remember brothers and sisters, Few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those that are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So here's God's big plan. God's big plan is to use us to accomplish incredible things for his kingdom. And on the face of it, there's just some, something of a bit of a foolishness to the plan. Because here's why, when you think about it, who's gonna accomplish this better? God just handling it himself or for him to hand it off to people like us? And he chose to hand it off to people like us. And it just doesn't make sense. I mean, some of you would probably look at this, even at work, you would probably look at this and say, I'm gonna give this job to you. And you watch a person kind of fumble around with it and you go, all right, stop, this is driving me crazy. Let me just take it over. Have you ever felt like that at work? Don't lie because the answer is yes, you have, right? Because if, if you don't jump in, it's gonna be foolish because you can always do it better. Truth be told, God can do everything better than us, am I right? God can do everything better than us. And truth be told, even before creation, God didn't create because God needed us. God is self-sufficient. But God created us and, and portioned for us an incredible work so that we are formed in the work that we do for him. And again, on the outside, it looks foolish because he's handing off the work of the kingdom to people that are on the, we're kind of messed up. We're not all put together. See, when I look at the church, I'm just gonna say it, my friends, the church is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. If you are a visitor today, first, I'm glad you're here, but if you were to look to your right or you were to look to your left, uh, some of the very neatest people that you will ever meet are sitting right there. I mean, we have some really amazing people walking around this church. It's just true. But I think every person that is a member of this church would also say, I don't have my act totally together. And that's part of what makes the church a beautiful thing. See, the message of Jesus is for everybody, isn't it? As Paul would say, it's for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for people that are slaves, it is for people that are free, it's for men, it's for women, that's everybody. It's for all of us. You see, I've never actually gone into a coffee shop, looked around at all the differences in people and thought, you know, these aren't my kind of people. I think I'm gonna to go to a different coffee shop. 
And when we walk into a church, you look around and you see all different kinds of people, people that were raised very differently, different nationalities, different cultures and so forth, different preferences in the food that we eat. And it's a beautiful picture of how everything in the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation can come together under one Lord and Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful thing to watch and see, isn't it? It's awesome. So I love it. And then you look and you go, and God says, and I'm going to choose you to do something incredible. What? What? You do it. And in fact, we feel like that pretty often. You know, when you look at all the suffering and evil in the world, and you go, why didn't God just intervene and take care of things himself? We kind of go there in our mind. But I want you to think for a second of the people that God uses. Here in this passage that we read, Paul says there are not many that are mighty among you. He didn't say there aren't any that are mighty among you. He said there aren't many that are mighty among you, are there? I'm glad he didn't say there weren't any. But there in Corinth, there were a few who had some standing in the community, but not many, not very many. Uh, At the beginning of the letter, he talks about Sosthenes, who helped him write this. He's mentioned at the beginning of the letter. Uh, You have Crispus, who had once been one of the rulers in the synagogues. I mean, that guy has some pull, obviously. Um, Perhaps he had some reputation. Uh, and, And at the close of the letter to Romans, which Paul wrote while he was in Corinth, he mentions a man named Erastus, who was a city treasurer. That guy has some weight. Also, there's mention to a man named Gaius, here in 1 Corinthians, who was evidently a wealthy businessman there in Corinth. But that's about it. (laughs) It's about it. You know who the rest of the people were? Normal folk. Normal folk. And even if you look at, at what was going on in Corinth, many of them were, in fact, slaves. And yet, God portioned them not just to come and be accepted by Christ, but to do great things for Christ when the rest of the culture, frankly, was worried about power. It's about gaining power. Now, I want to be very clear. There is nothing wrong with power. There's nothing wrong with power. There's the wise use of power and the appropriate use of power. And then there's the unwise and inappropriate use of power. The second of those is what's got to go. Nothing wrong with it. But in this culture, it was all about jockeying for getting up. And God's plan was to say, you know what? I think I'm going to take some of the slaves of this culture the people that don't have a great name or reputation, that you would not recognize even walking the streets and watch what I do. It took that society and went boom and flipped it on its head and said, watch, watch and see. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. You get it? He's chosen the foolish things of the world. And looking again at the Corinthians, Paul can say, you aren't wise according to the world. You aren't mighty according to the world. You aren't noble according to the world, but you are among the foolish things of the world. I mean, isn't that great to be included in that camp? Everybody's going to look at you and be like, what? No doubt many of the Corinthian Christians were beginning to think of themselves, and this is why Paul even brings this up. They started to think of themselves in high terms because of God's work in them. And he's like, hold on, hold on. Uh, Paul will not allow it. I mean, after all, none of them had been chosen because they were so great. They were chosen because God is great. And I want to say the same thing about myself and make the same suggestion for us this morning. None of us are here because we are so great. In fact, I came to Jesus because I recognized my need for him, not because I recognized my own greatness. But then after that, I said, Lord, would you do something great through me? I'll be honest with you. I've struggled with this over the years. 
I remember going in, in my second year of seminary, and I remember I was, I was asleep, and I just, I literally sat up in the middle of the night, overwhelmed with my sense that I was not worthy of doing this. I wasn't worthy of it. Now, what, what can you do through somebody like me? But this part in 1 Corinthians says, uh, actually, if you'll allow it, I can do quite a lot. I can do quite a lot. And did you know that it's exactly the same for you? He gives a word of caution here to the church at Corinth. He's like, don't be proud about this, but be thankful that you have the opportunity. So we have some concerns with pride. We have a lot of concerns with pride. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that is above you. And he's absolutely right. Do we have a problem with pride? The answer is, yes, we do. I'm just going to help you out with that question. We do, and I'll prove it. And I get this from AOL.com, and so you know it's true. <laughs> do we have a problem? We do. And it's proven with the, uh, the selfie epidemic that's out there in the world. Can I give you a little bit of information? Y'all jot this information down. Um, there are around 93 million selfies that are taken in a normal day. Where you're holding your phone, take a picture of yourself. 93 million selfies a day. About 1,000 selfies on Instagram every second. Millennials are on track to take around 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. I know you're wondering what the selfie capital of the world is, aren't you? I'm not going to entertain any guesses. The answer is the Philippines. I know you're all going there, right? And we judge them today. I'm kidding. <laughs> Just making sure y'all are paying attention. In 2015, more people died from selfies than shark attacks. Maybe, maybe we don't need to have Shark Week on TV. We need to have Selfie Week on TV. The sharks are leaving us alone, it seems. And just for proof, there were, over, there were 250 deaths over a period of a few years related to selfie taking. I'm going to give you a couple of examples because I know you want to know. Uh, drowning, 57 people drowned while they were taking selfies. By the way, there was a man in China that was dragged underwater by a walrus while he was taking a selfie. I'm not making that up. Falling. There are 27 people that died by falling while taking a selfie. They just lost awareness of where they were and hit, I'm not going to do it. I know you're watching. They weren't paying attention. They got the phone up and woo, off they go. 27 people passed away. 18 people were crushed by trains while taking selfies. 18 people by gunshot. I didn't get all those stories, but there you go. Seven people were actually electrocuted while taking a selfie. And then uh, probably my favorite of the whole bunch, there was a Russian man who was posing with a grenade <laughs> and taking a selfie. Anywho, now I'm doing more serious things. The reason I even bring that up is what has, been, what has been mentioned about the selfie culture is that it points to an, an, an exorbitant sense of self-focus rather than other focus. Now, you're all going to leave and be like, man, I'm nervous to post a selfie because Jeremy's probably watching the social medias now, right? And you'd be right, I am. And I'll be just, <laughs> I'm, all right, I'm kidding. All right. But let's get on to some more serious stuff about that. We know that we struggle with pride, and the church at Corinth was absolutely no different. We just do. And when we see that the Lord does something incredible through us, if we're not careful, we can say, see what I did. And Paul's saying, 
Be very careful with that. Just be careful. Rebecca DeYoung said this. She has a book called Glittering Vices, and she said, when we compare ourselves, or excuse me, when we compare what celebrities are well known for and what our heroes are admired for, we find a chasm between people whose glory far outstrips the value of the goods for which they receive it and the people whose worth far outstrips any glory that they will ever receive. And isn't she right? Isn't she right? What I would hope is that any good that we do, either myself or us as a church, would point people to Jesus. It really is as simple as that. There's a kind of pride that God hates, and there's a kind of pride over a job well done. And even scripture makes a distinction. In Proverbs 8.13, it says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. But in Galatians 6, 4, it says, let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. You can look at the end of the day and say, that was done well, and it was done for my Lord. There's nothing wrong with that, is basically what Paul is saying. The Corinthians had lost their way, and they were basically assuming the honor that was meant to go to Jesus through the work that they were doing. When the plan all along was to say, I'm going to take these slaves, I'm going to take these no-names, I'm going to take the people that this culture reviles and despises, and watch what I do with them. You see how it got messed up? He said, what I wanted to do was to put to shame the wise, and somehow you've made it about yourself. This explains, explains part of the pleasure of God that he talks about in chapter 1, verse 21. God loves to rebuke the idolatry of human wisdom. You worship your own sense of your greatness and wisdom. And he says, I want to break even that idol down because it isn't an idol worth worshiping. Now, I want to be clear. What God isn't saying is it's better to be a fool. He's not saying it's better to be uneducated. Rather, he's saying that the world's wisdom and education isn't what brought us to our need for Jesus Christ. It wasn't it. In putting the strong and the wise to great shame, God does not exalt the weak and uneducated and worthless, as John Calvin said, but brings all of them down to one common level. We see who Jesus is, and we see our need for him. So that's why, if you look at it, God is called the weak and the ignorant first, but not exclusively, not exclusively. Look at it. When Jesus comes, he goes to the shepherds first, then he goes to the wise men. He goes to the fishermen first, then he goes to the educated. By the way, just like Paul himself, a really educated man, he eventually comes to him. I love this quote. The ancient Christians were for the most part slaves and men of low station. The whole history of the expansion of the church is in reality a progressive victory of the ignorant over the people that were supposedly learned, the lowly over the lofty, at least in their own mind, until the emperor himself laid down his crown before the cross of Jesus Christ. That has been the flow of the work of God. Here's why all this is important. This is why. is so that no flesh should glory in his presence. No flesh should glory in his presence. This is the end result. No one will stand before God and say, I figured you out. Your plan is exactly how I would have done it too. And by the way, you know better, <laughs> all right? Your plan is exactly how I would have done it too. And here's why. is because God's ways are greater and higher, as the scriptures say, and nothing of the flesh will glory in his presence. You see, this includes the people that God uses in pretty amazing ways. Let me just give you a couple listed from Scripture. Noah, remember that guy? He drank too much. 
He drank too much. But God used him to build an ark and save the world in Genesis. Abraham and Sarah, remember them? They were old, washed-up couple who God used to build a nation. Joseph, remember that guy? He was an entitled teen who went through God's classroom, which was quite a lot, and trained him to save both Egypt and Israel in Genesis 37 through 50. Moses, remember him? This was the guy with the speech impediment who became God's spokesman and leader in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. You remember Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute who God used to help his spies and to overtake Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. How about Jonah? He was the escapist. He was the guy that said, I don't have any interest in you using me. You said go that way. I'll go that way. And then big fish stories, right? And God's like, no, you're going to go that way. He was the escapist who God brought back to save Nineveh. How about Esther? She was the adopted orphan who became queen to save Israel. How about Peter? He was the quitter who came back to God to do an incredible work for the kingdom of God. And how about the guy that wrote this letter to the church at Corinth? How about Paul? He was the enemy who became the most prolific Christian in the New Testament, if you just look at Acts chapter 7 through 9. So when I hear somebody say something like this, I'm unworthy. In a sense, that's absolutely true. I never came to Jesus because, like, because I'm worthy of this. But what I am is loved by him and portioned by his hand for my good and my blessing to do something incredible for his kingdom. And I can sit there and wallow in my defeats and failures, which trust me, I've got them. Probably you do too. Or I can move on with the work that he's assigned for me so that I can have a story like these guys that he's given in his word to inspire us. We can be just like them. See, the bottom line, the people that have never been of use for the kingdom of God are the people that don't want to be of use in the kingdom of God. It's been those people. Instead, Paul says, you can have a different story. You can have a different arc to your life. You just have to go with where God has been telling you to go. See, true wisdom, if you see in verses 30 and 31, belongs to those who believe in Jesus. That is the true wisdom. Because of, of, uh, of him, you are in Jesus Christ, who became for us the wisdom of God. You saw it. What's God like? Look at Jesus. You see it. Or as this quote says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus became wisdom for us. But it's not just that. If you looked at verses 30 and 31, he says there were three things that Jesus did for you. One is he imputed his righteousness to you. He gave you his very righteousness, meaning we are legally declared right in his eyes, not guilty before him. It means that our righteous deeds and a character of Jesus are accounted to us. We don't become righteous by focusing on ourselves, but because Jesus became a righteousness for us. That was one thing. The second thing is our sanctification. The moment by moment and the day by day, setting our lives apart for the work of his kingdom. He makes us new. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And all of it started, as it says, because he redeemed you. He redeemed you. He used an example here. The idea of redemption, it meant something to these people. Most of these people were slaves. And what slaves had to be is bought, bought out of something. He redeemed you. It was a word from the slave trade. The idea is that we've been purchased for a permanent freedom from an old way of life. He redeems you. He sanctifies you. 
and he imparts to you a righteousness. And then he says, now watch what I can do through you if you'll just make yourself available to me. See, before church, I was meeting with Discover Woodridge, you know, people that are, have been visiting the church, are interested in membership in the church. We had a really good group of people, a lot of good questions. Uh, one of the things that I was pointing out to the group is, you know, this is the plan of God. The plan of God is not just that you come to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's that you become a part of what God is doing to transform a community. And if you take very seriously what any of the studies would indicate, as Christians, we have a little bit more work to do. And all because of what Christ has already done on our behalf. But if you take the studies seriously, here's the basic truth. Most Christians don't have a fervent prayer life. Most Christians don't spend any time in the Word. And most Christians don't have one person that doesn't know Jesus, that they're loving on, that they're praying for, and that they're inviting to church. The problem with that is it's very difficult, it's very difficult for anybody to find Jesus the way that I did when I was 11 years old without somebody making that investment in me. We have our work to do. And the reason is, the reason that we do that work, as you saw right here, is because God was going to take people just like us and the plan was for us to do something extraordinary for him in response to the beautiful thing that he's done for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a beautiful thing. And I can just say on my end, what I want is for other people to have the same freedom. I want that. How about you? Jerry Bridges said it like this. He said, our worst days are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace. And that's true. And then he went on to say, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. The offer every day is simple. It's very simple. It's that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, Romans says, you are saved. Isn't that a beautiful story? And one that I would hope for believers it would never be lost on you what the Lord has done for you. And that for those of you that came in and you were seeking, that today would be the day that you take that story and make it your own. That you confess to Jesus, just like I did and others around you did, maybe some years ago, that you know that you're a sinner, that you're in need of favor. Not that you would earn a relationship with God, but that God came to you and says, I'm reaching out to you so that this relationship between us can be restored. The question this morning is, do you want it, not is it there? That's the story of his grace. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you are saved. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.